I hope you're having a great morning this morning. Uh, why don't you just turn to your person beside you or in front of you or behind you and say a quick hello. Make sure you know who's around you. Hi. That's good. Good. What a nice bunch of people. I should take a photo up here. You look really good. Uh, so what is God like? People have a lot of different ideas about what God is like, or like in the video, they maybe have no idea and maybe have never even thought of it. Uh, sometimes people's ideas of what God is like is coloured or informed by other people, isn't it? Aren't they? Uh, do you know, on average, you'll meet around 80,000 people in your life. And so isn't it weird if we think our understanding of who God is is based on one person that we met? Uh, but a lot of people do have this idea of what God is like based on maybe um, someone who said they were a God follower. Maybe that's why we've got so many stories about people's, um, you know, when they were at school with the nuns or um, the brothers or something like that, the priests, and they have this understanding that God is quick to dole out unreasonable punishment, quick to anger and unjust. Uh, or people might have an idea about what God is like just based on their parents' faith. They might think, well, yeah, my parents went to church and faith is totally irrelevant. God is just kind of something, like that guy was saying, something that makes your mind feel better, just maybe something of your mind. People say, I think God is everything. God is kind of like the internet, like the sum of everything. We're all little bits of God, like God's some sort of connection of everything that exists. Um, I don't know why, but people do have an idea about God that he's some sort of long, white-bearded dude in the clouds. I don't even know where that came from. Why has he got a long beard? Why is he in the clouds? Maybe throwing out lightning bolts and being a judge. That's probably Greek from Zeus or something. Or perhaps jolly, maybe a bit like Santa up in the clouds and just ineffective and jolly and caring for everyone. Uh, as believers in Jesus, we believe that God can be known and that he wants to be known. God's word, the Bible, uses these kind of words. Ephesians 1 and 3, it says that we can, this is the word, comprehend and understand the love of God through Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus expresses the very character of God. The disciples were saying, Jesus, show us what God is like. And he said, if you have known me, then you have known the Father. So Jesus shows us who God is. Jesus said that he is the revelation. He is the picture. He's the visible image of what previously was the invisible God. So what we need to do to get to know God better is look at Jesus. And so this morning what I want to get to do is just talk through this time when Jesus went to dinner at some guy's house. You've probably all done that. It's not weird, is it? Uh, yeah? Have you done that before? It was remarkably quiet. I've been to some guy's house for dinner before and it was normal. So um, Jesus did that too. So what I'm going to do in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, uh, I think it's verse 36 to sort of 50, I'm just going to read through line by line and just talk about what happened. So this guy, Simon, who's a Pharisee, we'll learn what that is shortly, invited Jesus to dinner 
let's see what happened. No bacon was served. Uh, so, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Some versions do say he sat down at the table. But um, back in those days, uh, they, did, they were influenced by the Roman idea of like lying down at a sort of table, kind of like a day bed. So they had their feet all sticking out the side and their heads all together and they'd have like a big table of all the food together. Now that does look weird to us, doesn't it? And you think, wow, we're lying down to eat. But as I was trying to find a good picture, I came across this one and I thought, maybe it's not that weird after all. Maybe you too have laid down to eat. And it's not that strange. Back to Jesus. As I read this first verse, I highlighted it for you. This is the part that struck out to me. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went. When we invite Jesus into our homes, into our workplaces, into our lives, into our situations, he comes. When we invite him, he comes. When this Pharisee invited him to dinner, he went. It's as simple as that. Amen. That's right. Uh, So, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster, alabaster jar of perfume. Sometimes I sound too Kiwi or else maybe like a Texan. I'm not sure where the middle ground for that vowel of the A is on that one, but if I just change it up, I don't know how an Australian would say it, alabaster or alabaster. You don't know either. (laughs) Now, we don't know what kind of woman, what what she did. Some versions of translations say that she was a prostitute. Some use the word harlot. Um, It doesn't actually say, but it says that she lived a sinful life. So we don't know exactly what she did. But we do know for a fact that her, her community knew her as that sinful woman. Well, that woman who lives a sinful life, that's how she's known. We don't know her name. It sounds archaic, doesn't it? We're like, oh, we wouldn't. How ridiculous they thought that about people. We would never think anything like that, would we? <clears throat> I know, you're as surprised as I am. But here's the thing. Uh, I went to a shop. Hopefully this is not identifiable. But I went to a shop where you purchase food in this very town, which I love. And uh, I was with a friend and we got some food and as the waitress left our table after delivering the beautiful food and she did a great job of it, um, my friend said, you see that woman? And then she started to tell me all this gossip about her life, about how, what stuff she had done to her young children. And I'm looking at this woman who's maybe 60 and I'm thinking, that doesn't even make sense. This woman does not have small children. What are you even talking about? And my friend said, yeah, like, when her kids were young, when she was younger. So maybe 30 years ago, she's telling me gossip about this woman just for waiting on our table. That was from 30 years ago. And I thought, in a small town, you know, once a sinner, always a sinner. Aren't you? You're branded for life. That's what I've always told my kids when they were like five and they thought someone was a bit mean in their class and they're like, she's a bully. I'm thinking... I've seen people who are in their 40s in this town and people still look at them like they're a bully for what they did when they were five. 
Once a sinner, always a sinner. And that's how people thought, thought about this woman. But that is not the way in God's kingdom. That is not what God is like. <clears throat> and here's something weird. Because I was trying to look up. Uh, there you go. That was what I meant to have up when I was talking about the woman at the shop. Uh, but I was trying to look up a picture, something like this, where there's a woman being judged. And I just Googled <clears throat> the term, the sinful woman. To see what came up. Risky, I know, but I've got safe search on. <laughs> safe search is on. And guess what came up for this sinful woman? Hundreds, you can do it yourself if you have safe search, hundreds and hundreds of photos and drawings, I should say, not photos, uh, drawings and, and video clips and all this sorts of stuff about this woman who went to Simon the Pharisee's house with her alabaster jar. So Google, 2,000 years later, is still calling that woman the sinful woman. There was no other women for hundreds and hundreds of searches. 2,000 years later, Google still won't let it go, that sinful woman. But that is not the way in the kingdom of God. When you go to heaven, you'll be like, oh, I'm really excited to be here. Who can I meet? I met Peter the other day. I met Jesus on the first day, obviously. Who can I meet today? Can I meet that sinful woman out of my favourite Bible story? And everyone will go, uh, no, there's no one here by that name. We don't know that lady. Who are you talking about? Oh, do you mean the woman that loved Jesus so much? Do you mean the woman who was completely forgiven? That's our new name that God gives us. We don't have people gossiping about us 30 years later because... Jesus gives us a new name, completely forgiven, completely made free. The woman who is free, not the sinful woman anymore. So this sinful woman brought an alabaster jar of perfume. So alabaster, alabaster, alabaster is a type of stone. And uh, so it would keep the perfume sealed in so you wouldn't be able to smell it really from the outside. Um, apparently it's a really... Uh, it's a bit like marble and apparently they would seal it with wax or a special seal. So they weren't opening it every day to dab a bit of perfume on. This is like a um, sealed thing. Lots of scholars think it was sort of this woman's investment plan or her retirement plan. It's probably worth a lot of money. She's not doing a bit of a dab every morning. This is staying sealed for a special uh, reason. So what did she do? She's come into the room. They're all lying down. She doesn't even make it to his head to talk to him. She just gets to his feet. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. This is behind Jesus. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So they're all lying down at the tables, leaning on their elbows or whatever. And this woman comes in and maybe Simon's trying to just politely ignore her, but she starts sobbing and she's crying and she's all like, like that and wiping her hair everywhere and, and then she cracks open the perfume and all of a sudden the smell of the perfume just fills the room and Jesus is doing nothing to stop her. Jesus isn't doing anything at this point. And I just kind of think that it's spontaneous on the woman's part because I don't know about you, but I think if she had a plan to come and wash Jesus' feet and anoint them with oil. She probably would have bought a towel. 
There's just something about washing, drying his feet with her hair that seems spontaneous to me. You'd probably do that with a towel. Uh, so she's just come, and I think she maybe even, um, you know, wanted to give Jesus this uh, perfume maybe for like his cause. It's like her giving her money into his cause. But she gets there. She doesn't even make it to his face to talk to him. She only gets to his feet, and she's just overcome with emotion. She's so grateful that Jesus has forgiven her, that she just can't do anything else but just weep and weep and weep and her tears go on his feet and she anoints them and now Simon's like, well, this is awkward. Because it would be if someone came to your dinner party and started doing that. Oh, there's a picture I made earlier. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said, Well, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and he would know what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This whole chapter, chapter 7 in Luke, is showing that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's more than that. He is God. And here we see Simon just like, oh, well, if he didn't know that one thing, that she's a sinner, that's it. Jesus doesn't know anything. His estimation of Jesus just plummets. He doesn't really care what Jesus says anymore. And then it says, Jesus answered him. Even though Simon just thought that and he didn't actually say it to Jesus, Jesus is showing, I do know what you're thinking and I know who this woman is. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he says, tell me, teacher. Possibly facetiously because he's thinking, Jesus doesn't have anything to teach me. So Simon is a Pharisee. That word means set apart or separate. And the Pharisees were like a bunch of, a branch of Jews. Sorry, you know how we have different branches of Christianity? So you might have the Catholics and Pentecostals and Uniting Church and Lutherans. And we just, we have the same God and we just have a slightly different understanding of different theological points. That's what the Pharisees were. They were a branch of Jews. And they began when a time, uh, the time of the Maccabees. So society around them was very, very hedonistic, just seeking pleasure, just wanting to do life based on whatever I feel, whatever feels good, I'm going to do. And so the Jewish people knew God's given us a special life. We're not just called, we're not just going to, you know, waste our life seeking after pleasure. And so they knew they had to set themselves apart from uh, what was going on in their day from the culture of the day. So they used uh, the written law and the oral law, which we have all written down now called the Bible, and they researched into that. They based their lives on that, trying to find out what was God's purpose for them. And they made this identity in being set apart from the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking uh, culture around them. So for us, as Christians, as believers in Jesus today, the Pharisees are a really, really important lesson and a warning to us because they started out perfectly right. It is a godly plan for us to be set apart from um, you know, a culture of, of death and hedonism. Romans 2, 12, 2, my favorite verse that I always say to teenagers, uh, don't be conformed to the culture of this world. Romans 1 says we are set apart for the gospel of Christ. Even the word holy, God is holy, that means like set apart, separated for a special purpose. So it is a godly idea 
to be set apart, but the Pharisees somehow got it wrong because although it is good to separate yourself from sin, when we look at Simon, we see he was separating himself from people because the Pharisees saw sin, like going against God's ways, as a contagious disease with no cure. There's just no cure for it. It's like, it's like this woman is contaminated. That's how he would have thought of her. He's probably watching everything she was touching because whatever the sinful woman touched becomes unclean. If she had have touched Simon, then to him that meant he had to ritually be cleaned before he could pray, before he could touch stuff in his own house, before he could sit down with his wife. So he'd probably be watching her being like, oh, and that rug. She'd, oh, she brushed that servant's thing. Oh, all those six cushions. Man, I'll have to put those out to ritually be clean tonight. He's probably watching everything she's touching because she's contaminated. You know, the Pharisees had rules that no woman could touch them. No unrighteous person could touch them. And of course, they're the ones who get to decide if you're unrighteous or not. But I just think how, like how, how in that communal, busy, marketplace kind of lifestyle did they leave? Did they, how could you pull that off that no one even accidentally touches you if they're unrighteous? How do you even make that happen? The only way to make that happen is to stay far, far away from sinners. And they made up rules about how many feet away that you had to be if you were a sinner. And God hates that. God's word, that's why Jesus is always harassing the Pharisees because they thought, oh, we're being holy, we're set apart for God, but God hated what they were doing. God himself, in Isaiah 65, 5 says, this is God, those who say to each other, don't come too close or you will defile me, I am holier than you, these people are a stink in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. He's disgusted by that attitude of, I am holier than you, don't touch me, don't come into my life, you defile me. So we're looking at what God is like today, and Simon shows us what God is not like. God doesn't set himself apart from us when we are sinners. In fact, that's when God draws closest to us. When we look at Jesus, he's always going out to the outcast, to the people that everyone else is against. He's touching people with leprosy. He's touching sinners. He's letting this woman touch him. He's promising paradise to murderers. He's always going out and he's restoring them. He never sets himself apart from sinners. That's when he draws near. So, let me tell you a story, Jesus said. And Simon's like, go ahead, teacher. This is Jesus' story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Jesus was really good with money. Denarii is one day's pay. So this is like 500 days pay that this one person owes him and 50 days pay for the other. 50 days is a big debt. 500 days wages is a crushing debt. But Jesus said neither of them have the money to pay him. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which one will love him more? Simon's a little bit trapped because obviously. Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. 
You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Simon had been so focused on being set apart that he forgot that he is just a sinner as well. He's just an ordinary guy who owes a debt to God. But the thing about this is, you know what, I don't know if you ever feel like this, but if there's someone who's like hating on other people or particularly um, a pet peeve of mine if people are racist, and I want to correct them. See, Jesus is correcting Simon here. But my way of correcting someone in that circumstance will probably be really shouty and angry and judgy and I'll be telling them off that they're doing the wrong thing and, and I won't be gently correcting them. But even in the midst of correcting this thing in Simon's heart, Jesus is actually, if Simon listens, Jesus is offering Simon forgiveness. He's saying, yeah, this woman has the big crushing debt, but you also have an unpayable debt. And God will forgive both debts. Even in the very midst of, God, of Jesus correcting Simon, he's saying, your debt can be forgiven too. Simon is the man who owes 50 days wages and he can't pay it back. So even if he doesn't think it's a very big debt, it doesn't really matter about the amount. If you can't pay it back, you can't pay it back. And that's the debt that we all have in God. We've turned it against God ways. And no matter the person, Jesus still offers forgiveness. I don't know if Simon hasn't accepted the forgiveness or he just doesn't recognize how precious it is. So then Jesus turns towards the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Just like my friend said at that shop, do you see that woman? Which I think is hilarious because this woman came in, everybody saw her. She's like <laughs> ah, crying, you know, uncontrollable sobbing, her hair's out, everything's oily, she's making a big social faux pas, everybody saw her. So do you see this woman is a little bit like, why, why, why are you starting there, Jesus? He could have just pointed. But the fact is that Simon did not see her, did he? He saw the contagion. He saw someone who was dirty, unclean. He saw someone who was just a, a mess, annoying him, wrecking his fancy dinner party. This awkward, too much outpouring of emotion, not fitting in with what he thought. And he just probably just wished that she would just go away and he doesn't have to deal with her. So he didn't really see her. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. The, the whole room of Pharisees, since this woman came in, would have been like, how did this woman get in? Who let this woman in? Why is she touching Jesus' feet? Why is he letting her touch everything and touch her feet? They would have exposed her, given half a chance. If Jesus had have let them, they would have exposed her. They would have stood her up, told everyone her sins, sent her out, and then made a big show about washing their hands because they were just made dirty by her presence, wouldn't they? And what does Jesus do? He shows her actions as God sees them in a totally different light. It's like he's saying, Simon, you thought, you're thinking that this woman is breaking all the social niceties, all the polite things we do, but actually she is fulfilling them. And you are the one found lacking 
because you're lacking in love. Because all of these things were normal, expected things that you would do when someone came to your house and we didn't have tar-sealed roads. Uh, people's feet were dirty. You would give them a basin of water. You would give them a towel to wash their feet. You greet each other with a kiss on the cheek, just like Europeans still do now. And if you wanted to honour your guests, you would anoint their head with oil. Simon did none of that. He was being quite rude by neglecting all those things. It's like... It's like, when Jesus, it's like Jesus compares them and he's saying, Simon, you, are, you think you're set apart, you are set apart, but not for God's purposes. You're not doing God's purposes here because God draws near, God touches the sinner. God is merciful, God reaches out, God is kind. God doesn't turn away from the sinner. You're set apart, but not for God. Jesus said, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love shows. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then my ultimate favorite line, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Take that, Google. (laughs) Your sins are forgiven. You know, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 14, it talks about the process of what to do if you had a contagious disease. So, you know, they had things like leprosy. They had to go away from their family, away from their community. They were separated. They were isolated. They were unclean. But they could go to a priest. And if the priest would do these sacrifices and atone for the person's sin, the person could be healed. Then they would go back to the priest and the priest would say to the community, this person is clean. And then they could be reconciled back to their community and go back, live at home, live with everyone. And here we see Jesus fulfilling that priestly function because his atonement on the cross, his sacrifice, his making it right with God gives us healing and gave this woman healing. And then he says, in the midst of all the people who would still judge her, you are clean and you have a new name now. You're not the same person you were. You, have a new, you are a new creation. So she could walk tall in town now. She could go to the temple and stand up and pray. People could look at her. The Pharisees would be like, what are you doing here, woman, you sinner? She'd go, I know. I was, right? <laughs> that was me. But it's not me anymore. Now... I'm forgiven, Jesus said. She's not untouchable anymore, ever again. Jesus, in the midst of all those people who want to shame her, he takes away shame. Who is God? What is God like? God takes away shame. That's what, he, that's what he's like. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know about you, and I know I've said this before, but if you have guilt and shame that you know you've done something wrong, we, without forgiveness, we just don't have the power to get rid of it ourselves, do we? It just hangs around in us, and it never sort of goes away, and it never diminishes. And we can justify stuff to our heart's content and wish we didn't do it and be sorry and stuff, but shame just never goes away. Even time does not really diminish guilt and shame. 
uh, 10, 20, 30 years later, if you think about that thing again, it all just comes rushing back. It's like we put it in the alabaster jar and when we open it up, whoosh, it's all there, just as potent, as strong as when we put it away 30 years ago. Without forgiveness, that shame that just hangs around us. And the Pharisees were right. We have no cure for this contagion of sin, except for Jesus. That's why Jesus came. Jesus is the cure. And he invites us like this woman to break open that jar of shame and pain, sin, whatever it is, that we thought we'd keep the lid on maybe forever, just to break it open at his feet, pour it all out, wet his feet with our tears and accept his forgiveness that he gives us. Because I hope that you know this, but when, and it sounded like you did when I was listening to you all singing those songs, when Jesus forgives us, he's just, like I'm speechless to describe it. When Jesus forgives us, when he says your sins are forgiven, then I'm almost speechless. It's like the shame is just gone, isn't it? The guilt is just gone. The, there's no more emotional blackmail you can play with yourself that I can't do this or say this or go there or see him in case they find out my secret sin. It's just all gone, just washed away. We're just free of it. It's just gone for good. Like for this woman, she could walk tall now. I'm forgiven. My, I know I've said it 16 times already, but my favorite verse in the Bible says, and I say it to myself all the time, is God tells us all who look to him will never be put to shame. All who look to him will never be ashamed. Can I have the music team up, please? Because Jesus takes shame off us in the midst of those very people who would judge us. That's who he is. That's what he's like. He's the cure to our shame and our peace. So to the self-sufficient, like Simon, the gospel can be offensive. To be told that you have a debt that is unpayable, that you require a saviour, that you can't save yourself, that you are a sinner and you can't do anything about that sin without Jesus, it's offensive. But to the brokenhearted, to those of us who know we need a saviour, then the gospel of Jesus is peace, freedom, and purpose. Because God, Jesus says to us, then you are a royal priesthood. Not just the priest or the minister or the father or the pastor or something, but every believer, you are a royal priesthood. You now have the function, as Jesus did, to go to those who society says is unclean and to offer Jesus sacrifice, to offer Jesus atonement, to say you are forgiven and restored to community. That's our role now, to take away shame and to give dignity to people. How awesome is that? That's our purpose. So as we've talked through uh, this gospel event, we looked at this woman who's poured out her 
heart, poured out her worship, poured out her life savings on Jesus because she just loves him and she's so grateful for his forgiveness. And we looked at Simon, so separated and set apart that he's even separated himself from the true heart of God, holding himself aloof. And we've looked at Jesus who just, you know, breaks every social boundary to bring dignity to people against everyone's expectations. I feel like it demands a response from us. And every time we read the gospel message, every time we hear about Jesus, what he said and what he did, it demands a, our response is demanded from us. Not from me, I'm not demanding nothing from you. But from our very own hearts. Do I believe this? Am I like that woman? Am I able to pour out everything to Jesus' feet? Or am I like Simon? Have I held myself aloof? Can I be like Jesus to those people in my life who are like this woman, who are like Simon? What, and what does Jesus say to me? Our response is demanded from us as we hear this. And today, I mean, we do all sorts of responses, but today we're going to do just exactly what Jesus and Simon were doing, and that's have a bit of dinner together. And we're going to do a thing called communion. It's a symbolic meal together. That's going to be our response today.